It's true. I really don't like being bored. I don't like having nothing productive to do. I like, love even being busy. I long to stay active and remain constantly mentally engaged. I have only relatively recently learned the value of a Sunday afternoon nap. But rather than rest, satisfied with my work, I am quickly looking for the next project, the next task, the next thing that I can be working on. Why rest when there's so much to do? I'm grateful that my grandfather taught me a really strong work ethic, and he modeled that for me. But the intensity of my personality risks taking a good work ethic to an extreme. My wife has guarded me from actually being a workaholic. I love her and enjoy spending time with her, so that I really do take breaks to do that with her. But the question remains, what would rest really look like for me? And does rest look the same for everyone? What kind of rest does Jesus offer to us? Part of our passage this morning is very familiar, a favorite to many, I suspect. Jesus' great invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, followed by his great promise of rest. And that is a sweet or savory word indeed. But this wonderful invitation and this wonderful promise comes after a terrible pronouncement of judgment. And it's attached to two of the deepest, most mysterious, most wondrous truths taught in all of Scripture. The doctrines of election and the union of the Father and the Son within the Trinity. Since Jesus ties these things together, judgment, election, the Trinity, the invitation, and the promise of rest, perhaps the key to experiencing the rest that he offers can be found in clearly hearing what Jesus has to say. Would you follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30? I want to get the whole passage in front of us at first this morning. Last week we explored the earlier part of Matthew 11 and we learned about John the Baptist and his confusion and disappointment regarding Jesus. At the end of that passage, in verses 16 to 18, Jesus commented quite negatively about this generation, illustrating the Jewish people's stubborn rejection of both John and Jesus. As we press on from this point in Matthew's Gospel, we'll find the opposition, rejection, and hostility against Jesus increasing rapidly. In these verses this morning, we'll get Jesus' theological reflections on that reality. So, let's hear what he has to say. Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades." For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. 
But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and none knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So, after Jesus compares this generation to stubborn children, he gets a bit more specific, announcing judgment woes upon three particular Jewish towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Matthew indicates that the people of these towns saw most of Jesus' miracles up to this point. We haven't heard in our trek through the Gospel of Matthew anything about Jesus ministering in Chorazin or Bethsaida, but that shouldn't surprise us. Matthew isn't telling us absolutely everything Jesus did or absolutely everywhere Jesus went. The Apostle John supposed that the world could not contain all the books that would need to be written to record everything that Jesus did. Here, Jesus reveals that the people of these three towns have not repented. That reminds us that the purpose of Jesus' miracles was not simply to help these particular individuals, to heal them of diseases, to free them from demonic oppression or control, or even to restore them to physical life after they had died. The miracles pointed to the need of these people to repent to turn away from their sinful rebellion against God and to turn to Jesus with faith. The majority of the people who saw his miracles and perhaps many who benefited from his miracles did not repent. So Jesus pronounces judgment on them. Last week, we said that John the Baptist was disappointed in Jesus because Jesus wasn't bringing the fire and brimstone that John had expected Here, Jesus carries John's announcement of judgment further. Jesus' message fits quite well with John's message, after all. His pronouncement of judgment comes in the form of woe oracles, modeled after the judgment oracles of the Old Testament prophets. But most of the woe oracles in the Old Testament were directed against pagan, Gentile nations. Here, Jesus is using those same words those same forms to condemn the people of Jewish towns. Then he adds insult to injury by saying that on Judgment Day, the people who had lived in the most infamous wicked cities of the Old Testament period of history will experience less severe judgment, less severe punishment than these Jewish people. Tyre and Sidon were infamous 
for exploiting the weak, engaging in polytheistic idol worship and sexual immorality. But the Old Testament prophets announced judgment against these cities, mainly Tyre, primarily because of their pride and arrogance due to their extravagant wealth. And Sodom's destruction, narrated in the book of Genesis, is hard to forget. The people of Sodom were notoriously wicked, so much so that the city and its historical judgment by God became a paradigm, a model, a template for later judgments of other places. When the prophet Ezekiel describes the wickedness of Jerusalem and the coming judgment of the southern kingdom Judah, he compares Jerusalem with Sodom. The sins of Sodom that Ezekiel mentions are not what we would expect from reading the story in Genesis. Technology is fantastic. I'm a big fan of paper and pen. Fair question. I'll revisit that after today. (laughs) Appreciate it. It was bound to happen one day. There we are. Talking about Sodom. So the prophet Ezekiel talks about the condemnation of Jerusalem, and he's comparing Jerusalem with Sodom. And he says that this, he refers to the sins of Sodom, um, but that again, that's not what we would expect from reading the story. Ezekiel 16.49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And so it was that God destroyed the city of Sodom and its neighboring towns. The people living in these towns were proud, wealthy, and uncharitable. From Genesis, we can add that they were sexually immoral as well. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. A woe oracle is basically the opposite of a beatitude. A beatitude is intended to assess a person's circumstances positively. Jesus just spoke a beatitude back in verse 6 of Matthew 11. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The one who is not offended by Jesus is to be congratulated, fortunate, happy, in a good place. Blessed. But to those who are offended by Jesus, to those who refuse to repent, even in the presence of Jesus, even after hearing Jesus teach and seeing him do miracles, Jesus says, woe. People who reject Jesus are not to be congratulated. They are to be pitied. They are not fortunate. They are miserable. They are not happy, not truly happy anyway. While the people of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom will certainly not be blessed, will certainly not be happy on Judgment Day, their punishment will be less severe than the people who had the opportunity to respond to Jesus directly. Why is that? Well, there's a principle at work here. 
The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. It's not that the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida committed worse immorality or had greater pride or broke more of God's commandments. These towns are not major cities. They're not particularly famous or infamous in Jewish history. They're just ordinary towns with ordinary people living in them. One writer describes them as collections of perverse normality. These are normal, common Jewish people. But because God has chosen to send Jesus to live among them and to do miracles for them and to preach the gospel to them, their rejection of Jesus will cost them more than they could ever calculate. Jesus is commenting on the utter seriousness of rejecting him or ignoring him when he's presented to people with such clarity. Listen, people will continue to exist forever in a place called hell. Each person in hell will have their own unique, personalized experience of punishment and misery. I'm going to give you a lame analogy that I hope might help you grapple with this idea. It may be harder for most of you because you live here and you've not lived in Texas. Some of you may have. Being from East Texas myself, where the outside temperature gets over 100 degrees and can stay that way for weeks at a time, I've been accustomed to enduring the heat. Some people are out working in it all day, every day. They experienced the impact of the heat in a way that I did not. I would spend almost all of my time indoors or in a car or in the shade, almost always with a powerful air conditioner protecting me from the impact of the heat. I still sweated. I was still hot. I still, for brief times, felt the indirect impact of that intense heat, but I never, ever felt the full force of that heat. Even though the sun was blazing all around me, I didn't experience the same level of misery as some construction workers I would see out on the side of the road in the middle of the afternoon. Hell will be a place where each person has their own personalized, unique experience of misery because each person has a different measure of accountability based partly on how much revelation they have received, and partly on the fact that each person sins differently than everybody else, more or less often, with different kinds of rebellion. Sin is not equal before God, and it will not be punished in equal measures. Every individual who has ever lived throughout all of history will get exactly what they deserve, except for followers of Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a bit. Notice here in Matthew 11 what Jesus knows. Sometimes we might postulate on what might have been And in our overconfidence, we might even prognosticate about the future, saying, if only this would happen, then this other thing would certainly come to pass. But Jesus actually knows that the residents of these Old Testament cities, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, would have repented 
from their wickedness if God had sent Jesus to them. That might raise the question in our minds, why didn't God send Jesus to them? Charles Spurgeon crystallizes the issue here, and I'll let you ponder his observation before Jesus elaborates on this mystery. Spurgeon writes, God gave the opportunity where it was rejected, and it was not given where it would have been accepted. Before Jesus explains this, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says about Capernaum as well. Capernaum became Jesus' hometown, his base of operations, his ministry headquarters, if you will. So in many ways, the people of Capernaum were the most privileged of these towns that are being discussed. Jesus chastises them by way of a question. Look again at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus is using the language of Isaiah 14, where the prophet Isaiah condemns the king of Babylon for his wicked pride. Here, then, Jesus is connecting these Jewish people with the great enemy of the Jewish people, Babylon. The people of Capernaum may have become proud, ironically, because the great prophet Jesus spent lots of time in their community, We must be special. God is doing all these miracles through this man, Jesus, in our town. How highly exalted we must be for this privilege. Jesus says, you are all going to die. Hades is the realm of the dead. It's the place where a person's spirit goes immediately after dying during this period of history before Jesus dies and rises from the dead. And for the wicked, for the unbelievers, it is an unhappy place of torment. It is like being locked up in county jail while you wait for the judge's sentence, which will be life in federal prison. Jesus is saying, don't pat yourselves on the back because I'm here doing these miracles in your town for your citizens. I'm not here as a reward for your greatness. There's a significant warning in this passage that we need to hear, specifically as Americans. We are a privileged people. The freedom of religion we enjoy in this country is a good thing. And the facts that there are Christian churches in virtually every town in this country, and that there are Bibles freely and cheaply available to pretty much anyone who wants one, and that Jesus can be still spoken of pretty much in anywhere and anytime, with very little restriction, are all things to celebrate. But, all of those facts mean that we have much in common with Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus has been here. He's been at work through His people. That means that the people of this country, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, are highly accountable. And I want to direct this warning to anyone listening to me, anyone in this building who comes into this church regularly or just once in a while, or even if you're here for the first time, beware of ignoring this Jesus that we're talking about here. Beware of rejecting this Jesus that we're talking about. Beware of delaying to turn your life around and follow this Jesus we're talking about. 
You only have a few years on this earth, breathing this air, hearing this gospel. Eternity is much, much longer. And how you respond to Jesus in this life is the deciding factor in whether you will enjoy eternity or not. Don't let this warning and this talk of judgment turn you away. Keep listening to what Jesus says here. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus turns to say a prayer. A short prayer, but a wonderful prayer of thanksgiving and praise to his Father, the Lord of both heaven and earth. In light of the rejection Jesus is facing, in light of the judgment that he has warned these people of, Jesus gives thanks and praises God for two things. And it appears that this was a public prayer of Jesus. He said this in the hearing of the crowds around him. First, he thanks and praises his Father, look in verse 25, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever thanked God for his hiding things from people? What things does he hide? Well, from the context of Matthew 11, I think it must be the significance of Jesus' miracles. And second, the true identity of Jesus as God's Son and Messiah. In the face of increasing rejection, Jesus is not discouraged. He praises God. He gives thanks for the rejection because he knows that it is a result of the Father's work of hiding these things from people. Now, why is that something we should thank God for? And why does God do this? Why wouldn't he reveal these things to everyone? Well, it seems that God's work of hiding is an expression of his rightful judgment of those who are in rebellion against him. We might like to think that everyone deserves a chance to hear about Jesus. That everyone should have the opportunity to know the truth about God. Jesus' prayer seems to imply the opposite. No one deserves the chance to hear about Jesus. No one deserves the opportunity to know the truth about God. Notice who it is that God hides the truth from. The wise and understanding. It's those who think they already know how life's supposed to work. It's those who think they have nothing to learn. It's those who refuse to admit that they actually know nothing about God or His ways. In other words, it's the proud who refuse to humble themselves. The Jewish people in these towns who experienced Jesus' miracles and teaching were surely impressed by the miracles, but they seemed to have thought that they were receiving these blessings from God because they deserved it. We are the wise and the understanding. That is why Jesus has come to heal our sick and minister among us. Jesus thanks God for a second thing. Look again at verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have... And then to the end of the verse, revealed them to little children. So Jesus also praises God for his work of revealing the truth to some people, to those he calls little children. Now when Jesus refers to little children like this, usually he's speaking metaphorically. He's referring to those who are childlike in the best sense of the word. Probably he's emphasizing how little children can be unpretentious, teachable, 
eager to learn. Not all little children are like that. But their naivete puts them in a position, a natural position, to be taught. Even though lots of children I know are among the most arrogant human beings I know. Usually we see that in teenagers. But I'm seeing it increasingly in younger children. Maybe that's just in my house. At any rate, Jesus is referring to those who see him rightly. Those who respond to his miracles and his preaching with repentance and faith. But get the key thought here. The ultimate reason, the ultimate reason behind people misunderstanding and rejecting Jesus is the work of God's hiding the truth from them as an expression of judgment against them. And also the ultimate reason behind people repenting and believing in Jesus is God's work of revealing the truth to them, enabling them to perceive Jesus' identity and turn to him. Jesus affirms in verse 26 that both God's act of hiding and his act of revealing are expressions of God's good pleasure, as the 1984 NIV puts it. Paul would later elaborate on this reality by saying that we were saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast. Jesus then turns away from praying and he elaborates on the significance of his prayer for the listening crowd. In verse 27, we move further into the mystery. Look there again, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The unity and intimacy of the Father and the Son within the Trinitarian Godhead is glimpsed in these words. So in verse 25, Jesus indicates that the Father hides the truth from some and reveals it to others. But now in verse 27, Jesus explains that the Father has actually delegated that divine prerogative to his Son, to Jesus. Famously, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, in the Great Commission, after the resurrection of Jesus, he will announce to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here, even before the cross and the resurrection, the Father has delegated the authority of personal revelation over to His Son. What the Apostle Paul will refer to as calling. And the reason that this makes perfect sense is because the Son is the only one in all the universe who knows the Father perfectly and completely. Therefore, he is the only one who can actually reveal the Father to anyone else. The Apostle John says something similar in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That reference to the only God who is at the Father's side is a reference to the Son, Jesus And so it is here that Jesus is aware of this utterly unique intimacy that he has with his Father. And therefore, if anyone wants to know God, the only way to find him is through Jesus. 
Jesus must reveal the Father to a person for a person to come to know God. There is no other way. In these verses, we have the mystery of divine election before us. Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to certain people. And the broader teaching of Scripture indicates that the Father chose before creation certain people he would save during history, according to Ephesians 1.4. And in Ephesians 1.4, we find out that the Father made this choice in Christ, in relationship and consultation with his Son. In relationship and consultation with his Son. Think about the marvel of that. Before there was anything else, the Father and the Son thought of you and chose you. That should move us to worship. Here we find another dimension of this reality. In history, Jesus personally reveals God to those whom God chose before the foundation of the world. That's what happened to you when you, when God saved you. Jesus revealed the Father to you, whereas a millisecond before you could not see him as he is. How should we respond to such a word, to such a difficult concept? concept that makes us utterly tiny and insignificant, completely unable in ourselves to find our way to God, we should respond like Jesus, with worship. Praise and thanksgiving to the God who chooses. If you find yourself squirming, because this sure seems to take the power out of your free will, hang on and keep listening. But also keep squirming. To humble yourself is to recognize how weak your will really is. Do you really want to leave your eternal destiny up to the power of your will alone? Be careful that in the face of this truth, you don't swing over to the pride that earned the condemnation of Jesus in these very verses. Put your hand over your mouth before you speak against the electing grace of God the electing grace of Jesus. Instead, realize that if he hadn't chosen you, you would never have seen him, known him, recognized him for who he is. If he hadn't chosen you, the cross would mean nothing to you. If he hadn't chosen you, you would remain in your rebellion for all of eternity. If he hadn't chosen you, you would have never found him. If he hadn't chosen you, you would spend eternity in hell receiving exactly what you deserve for your rebellion against him. If he hadn't chosen some, no one on the face of the planet would be saved. The ultimate reason followers of Jesus don't get the punishment we deserve for our rebellion is because God has chosen to rescue us through the death of His Son. Jesus paid the penalty for our rebellion so that God may be just. Our sins have been punished fully 
as they deserve. And God may be the justifier of those who trust in Jesus, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul. Respond to the doctrine of election the way Paul does in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Praise Jesus, the great chooser. Praise Jesus, who chose to reveal his Father to me so that I could know God and so that I could enjoy life with him forever and ever. Praise Jesus who chose to die for my sins, to erase my debt before God, to remove my eternal shame for my great failures. Praise Him. Immediately after speaking of His right to choose who He will reveal the Father to, He issues a general call and a command for all to come to Him. So in the same paragraph that He describes the wonder of election... He engages our free will to respond to him. So quit your squirming about free will in the face of God's election. Of course, we freely respond to his call. But let's not delude ourselves into thinking that our response is just up to us. No, God's grace is Still, the decisive factor here, even as he works through our real, free choice. Let the tension stand. Jesus invites, summons, commands all who are la- who labor and are heavy laden to come to him for rest. Who's he addressing? Primarily, He is setting his sights on his Jewish audience, people who have been carrying the burdens laid on them by the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees. But I'm sure we can broaden this out to recognize that Jesus is addressing everyone, Jew or Gentile, who has felt the weight of trying to earn God's favor. People work very hard to be good in this world. Hoping desperately hoping that if there is a judgment to come, their good deeds will outweigh their sins. But I think Jesus' invitation can be broadened out even further. Surely Jesus recognizes that sin itself weighs people down. Every human being on the face of the planet throughout history has felt the weight of guilt or shame to one degree or another, and none of us really feels that weight as much as we should. In fact, Jesus knows the truth about every human being on the face of the planet. He knows that all human beings are enslaved to sin, whether they know it or not. Jesus is the only one who can grant true freedom to human beings. Here, Jesus addresses all people and says, He is the solution. He is the one who can provide rest. He promises to those who will come to him, I will give you rest. Now, it's hard for me not to see some Old Testament background here in what Jesus says. In the book of Exodus, after the people of Israel had built and worshipped a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, God threatens to judge and abandon the people. Moses prays for the people, intercedes for the sinful, idolatrous people, and God responds to Moses 
in Exodus 33:14, "My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." The rest that God promised to the sinful people of Israel here was the experience of entering and settling in the promised land. Jesus is surely echoing this promise, putting himself in the place of God, who has the right to promise people the full experience of rest, the experience of rest that the promised land only dimly foreshadowed, rest that will culminate for us with sinless perfection in resurrected bodies, in a renewed, uncursed new creation. But isn't there more to this rest? Isn't there a real aspect of this rest that we can experience in the here and now, during this life? At one level, Jesus' offer of rest here is simply the offer of eternal life, which begins the moment a person begins to trust in Jesus. But why the language of rest? Well, if we remember that he's primarily dressing Jewish people who have been weighed down by heavy burdens from the teachings of the Pharisees, rest means that you don't have to work to get right with God. Rest becomes the context in which true righteousness is experienced and enjoyed by followers of Jesus. Our work in obedience to Jesus, in obedience to God's word, doesn't earn righteousness from God. Our righteous status is settled in God's book forever. But does that mean then that we no longer need to work? Look again at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What's a yoke? This is what a yoke looks like. You'll put that slide on the screen. This is a human yoke. It's designed to distribute the weight of a load to the outer ends in order to relieve the pressure from the person carrying the load. In the past, when I've read this passage, I tended to think of the ox yoke, a similar device that is put over the necks of two oxen to enable them to work together to pull a cart or some other heavy load. However, I think Jesus may have the human yoke particularly in mind here. Jesus invites, summons, commands all who labor and are heavy laden to voluntarily submit to his yoke. The image is that a person would come to Jesus, bow down in front of him so that he may place his yoke over our necks. The yoke is a very common piece of equipment and it became a very common metaphor in the ancient world for slavery and hard work. A yoke helps you keep working. It's hard to think of a restful yoke, a yoke that helps you rest. But get what Jesus is saying. He promises, I will give you rest, and then immediately he says, come work for me. It seems that Jesus doesn't want us to stop working necessarily. That's not his point. Instead, he wants us to work differently, to work in a way that doesn't seek to earn anything from God. The next command gets more specific. What kind of work are we to do? We are to learn from him. 
We are to become his students, his apprentices, his disciples. Learning from Jesus is at the heart of discipleship. Recall the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. How are we to make disciples of all nations? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then by teaching them to observe, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Discipleship is primarily about learning to live as a slave of Christ. Learning to obey Jesus' commands. Said differently... Discipleship is primarily about learning to work for Jesus. Why would anyone volunteer for this? Why would anyone, especially us, freedom-loving, independence-loving Americans, want to submit to slavery to Jesus? Because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And from verse 30, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is a yoke. There is a burden to carry, but that burden is not the guilt of our sins. And that yoke is not working to earn righteousness before God. No, Jesus took up a yoke of sorts in order to carry the burden of our guilt. If you look again at those images of human yokes on the next slide, see how similar it looks to a man carrying a crossbeam on his shoulders. He has taken the hard yoke of obeying the law of God perfectly. He has carried the burden of fulfilling all of God's commands, God's righteous demands. And he has even gone so far as to carry the burden of guilt for sins he didn't commit. All the way to paying the final penalty for those sins, death on the cross. Notice the reiteration of the promise here in verse 29. You will find rest for your souls. This is another direct quotation from the Old Testament. This time Jesus reaches for Jeremiah 6.16. The Lord sends a message to the people through the prophet Jeremiah. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The Lord summons his rebellious people to repent, to turn back to the ancient paths, the paths of righteousness, the paths laid out for them in the Mosaic law, to walk on the good path of God's wisdom as described in the Old Testament scriptures. But the Jewish people of Jeremiah's day refused. At the end of verse 16 there we read, but they said, we will not walk in it. Jesus is facing the same rejection from the Jews of his day. And that's where we started this morning. As in Jeremiah 6, where God commands the people to repent and pronounces judgment on the rebellious people. Here in Matthew 11, Jesus pronounces judgment against those who refused to repent, even though they witnessed and benefited from His miracles and His preaching. And before He executes His final judgment... He tells them one more time where the good life can be found. The good life can only be found in submitting to Jesus' yoke, coming to Him, trusting Him, and following Him, orienting our whole life around Him, who He is, what He's done, and the work He commands us to do. 
With this great invitation coming on the heels of such hard words about election, we might still struggle with how these can fit together in the same passage. Ultimately, if we need to address that struggle, we can recognize that whoever does actually come to Jesus in response to this invitation are people to whom Jesus has chosen to reveal the Father, to reveal God. Those who respond to Jesus' invitation are those who humble themselves like little children, accept the testimony of Scripture about their identity as slaves of sin, deserving of God's wrath by nature and by deed, and have had their eyes opened by God to see Jesus as the gentle and lowly Savior who has paid for their sin on the cross risen victoriously from the dead and ascended to sit on his throne, worthy of all worship and submission. What then of the rest that Jesus offers? How should we think about it in our everyday experience? It's no accident that the very next section in Matthew talks about Jesus working on the Sabbath and teaching about the true significance of the Sabbath day. The concepts of rest and Sabbath are linked throughout Scripture. When we think of the Sabbath day as simply a day to cease working, I think we're missing the bigger picture. Similarly to how the Pharisees missed the point of the Sabbath. Sabbath rest was not really about the absence of work one day a week, because that's a healthy and wise thing to do. It is, I guess. Sabbath rest was always really about honoring God and trusting Him with the outcome of our labor. So does this passage help me with my daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, constant dilemma of failing or struggling to rest? Yes, but not like I expected. I had expected that I would learn how to reprioritize my life in such a way that ceasing from work could become a normal rhythm for me. And that might still need to happen, more. But as I've reflected on this passage and what the rest of the Bible has to say about rest, I've actually found another tension that I think we need to hold on to. God's choosing which sinners he will save must be held in tension with the truth that sinners must respond, choose to respond to Jesus in order to be saved by God. Similarly, Jesus offers those who come to him the experience of rest but at the same time calls and commands those who come to him to work for him. I don't see him saying, sometimes you get to rest and sometimes you get to work. Instead, I see Jesus calling his his followers to a life of restful work. This passage is not so much about the end of our labors, but it's more about the way we go about our work. We shouldn't work to earn anything from God. We shouldn't work to earn righteousness or anything else, blessing, goodness before and from God. Instead, we should work resting in the finished work of Christ. And we should work resting in His promises to make our work effective. I'd like to close with three verses from Paul that spell out this tension in other terms. First, consider Paul's understanding of his own experience recorded in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul worked really hard, demonstrably harder than the other apostles, but he recognized or he rested in the reality that it was God's grace that was powerfully working in his work, through his work, that brought such wonderful effects in the lives of the churches. God gets all the credits, but Paul worked really hard. Second, Paul's words in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 have become among my most favorites in the Bible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul commends the Philippians for their hard work of obeying Paul and his words and his instruction, and he challenged them to continue working hard, and he connects their hard work tightly with salvation. We are not saved by our working, but we are saved in order to work. But even as we work really hard to obey God, to obey the teachings of Jesus, to obey the words of the apostles, we can Rest in the truth that God is working in us to enable us both to desire to please God and also to actually please God by what we do. We must work really hard, but at the same time, we can rest. Because if we ever want to please God, it's because God has produced that desire in us. And then if we are ever to actually do anything that actually really pleases him, it's because God has produced that pleasing effect in and through us. Finally, I leave you with Paul's charge that concludes 1 Corinthians 15. After expounding on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Paul commands in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, could we say, resting in, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is a glorious promise that you can indeed rest in, even as you labor and work really hard to serve the Lord. I'd like to invite the music team to join me back on stage here, and I'd like to sing the song. It's an old song. We sang it earlier this morning uh, about resting in the Lord, and it communicates the same message that we've seen here. Our work is never going to earn anything from God. You need to know that up front. But that doesn't then say, well, then why should I work? It doesn't take the motivation for working off the table. In, in fact, it gives a better more effective motivation to know that God is guaranteed that the work will be effective and fruitful and also that he's already taken care of the righteousness piece. That's settled and done for us who believe in him. So would you stand and sing this song once again from your hearts?